This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magania. Surge, part one. Hi, and welcome back to EM Pulse. It seems impossible not to mention the unrest that is ongoing in our community and country. We were all impacted by the recent senseless violent deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others. If you've been listening to our podcast, you know that race and implicit bias are recurring topics. Our goal at Impulse is to expand on these difficult conversations and explore with experts how we can advocate for our patients, especially those facing discrimination. This is our fifth podcast on COVID pandemic-related topics. We're trying to look at this pandemic through a different lens. With so many amazing sources for clinical information out there, we want to talk about some of the other aspects of the pandemic that are definitely impacting us in the medical community. Right. So this time we're talking about surge. This is something we as a nation, not just as individual hospitals are talking about, Heck, the ability for your hospital to care for sick patients, i.e. the number of ICU beds and how full they are, is an actual marker if your area can open up. Just so we are all on the same page, in very simple terms, a medical surge occurs when patient volumes challenge or exceed a hospital's servicing capacity. The Department of Health and Human Services describes it as the ability to provide adequate medical evaluation and care during events that exceed the limits of the normal medical infrastructure of an affected community. This is often, but not always, tied to high volume of patients in the emergency room. For example, after a mass casualty incident or the slow roll disaster that never seems to end. There are many ways a system can be overwhelmed. You can be overwhelmed with the number or volumes of patients, i.e. capacity, or by a patient who needs unusual or very specialized medical care, i.e. capability, that you cannot provide. Many hospitals across the world experienced both with coronavirus, but close to home, we saw a significant surge in both capacity and capability in New York and New Orleans. So we connected with colleagues in both cities to see what they learned and connect back with local specialists on strategies on how to be ready for surge. Julia, we have so much good material here that I think we need to shut up and let our experts share their experiences <laughs> and tips for surge. In fact, we had such an abundance of material and expertise that this is actually a two-part surge podcast. Okay, let's start it off. Dr. Leslie Palmerly is a former colleague of ours at UC Davis who returned to New Orleans last year. She's now an assistant professor of emergency medicine at LSU University Medical Center in New Orleans. She told me what it was like to experience the surge in New Orleans. I asked her, how did this start? What was it like? It was, um, <laughs> it was a lot of things at once. It was, it was pretty overwhelming. We went from like a lot of places, nothing, nothing, you know, having a patient here or there that had a fever and had been somewhere exotic and thinking, oh, maybe they have this coronavirus and trying to call the health department and getting them tested sort of here and there. And then, um, and I remember this pretty well, this was March 9th, we had our actual first confirmed case in New Orleans. And it was somebody that hadn't traveled, so, you know, had no known contacts whatsoever. And seemingly overnight, 
everyone in town was sick. I mean, it really sort of exploded. Um, and so my shifts in the in that that week uh, just it was just a whole new world overnight. At both hospitals, the ER pretty much turned into you know ninety five percent COVID patients. All of them really quite quite sick. So sort of clinically, that was <laughs> overwhelming and. Part of it is we didn't really know what to do other than really trying to give these patients oxygen and intubate them. We really knew nothing else. They were all very, very hypoxic. And yeah, that was overwhelming. Beyond that, in terms of um, supplies, every kind of supply is always a question. It was always sort of this feeling, are, are we about to run out of things? You know, in terms of PPE, we were probably did pretty well. I think, I mean, we certainly didn't have an N95 mask for every patient and gowns galore. Um, we certainly could have used more, but I never, I never personally felt like I was not protected. It was always sort of in the back of the mind. Do I go in this patient's room after the resident has already gone in and sort of use up a gown? Do I wear my N95 the entire time? Do I take it off? I think that was a big part of sort of why it was difficult is that you're sort of trying to figure out this very confusing new entity and at the same time trying to figure out how in the world is to to get yourself dressed and try and make sure that you're not using up the supplies that who knows when they're going to run out. In terms of uh, ventilators and intubation supplies and all that, uh, we always did just fine. In in sort of ironically, in some respects, I think Hurricane Katrina sort of saved us um, because both the hospitals that I work at are relatively brand new, very large, state-of-the-art, lots and lots of extra space. And so extra ICUs popped up, <laughs> extra rooms. You know, we don't have any hallway beds in our EDs. So in terms of physical space, it was very controlled, actually, um, compared, I think, to a lot of places that dealt with similar type surges. What was the mood like amongst the faculty, amongst the patients? Like, what was that experience like? Early on, you know, there's sort of an excitement, maybe just a, an energy in there that that in a lot of ways we're used to in the ER. We're used to um, a lot of activity, people coming in. I mean, especially at the academic center, we are a busy, busy ER, and we're used to a lot of sick patients coming in, um, and we all sort of thrive on that. So that's partly what we're experiencing, and we're all sort of really pulling together and trying to just figure it out as we as we went together, the teamwork was was amazing. At the same time, there was, I think, a little, you know, an undercurrent of, of fear. No one knew who was going to be next. You know, it hit so hard. It was sort of, everyone was sort of thinking about, oh, gosh, that patient I saw a week ago, that patient I saw three days ago, definitely had this. You know, you're watching these patients be just so incredibly ill and not knowing how we personally were going to be be affected and how our families might be affected. I think sort of a couple of weeks in, it certainly was fatiguing. I just remember particularly walking into a shift and just feeling like the nursing staff was just getting sort of run down from, I think, seeing all the sick patients, trying to protect ourselves, trying to figure out, again, sort of going back to the PPE how to wear it appropriately. It's just a whole nother layer of doing the job that was already sort of exhausting. Did any of your, were any of your medical personnel getting sick? Were you guys seeing colleagues getting sick or people you worked with? 
particularly early on, quite a few residents and faculty and nursing staff did get ill. I think most of the people that got sick actually got sick because they were seeing patients before we knew what was going on. That's one of the things I've been sort of surprised by is, is how well the PPE turns out seems to work. Luckily, I didn't have to deal with very close colleagues getting critically ill, but it was certainly, there were people that were sick and and it was always sort of also that waiting game because we all knew, you know, day seven-ish, people often were sort of falling off, um, falling off the cliff. And so that was, that was worrisome. We're used to taking care of very ill patients. And a lot of times we are able to sort of put up some emotional barriers and have some sort of disconnect. And I think that was very difficult to do in the early stages with this because we didn't know if our family members were going to be next and we didn't know if we were going to be taking this home to them. And so sort of just took a larger emotional toll, I think, than we're used to. I think one of the sort of, I don't know, funny, but one of the things I was thinking about, especially in those first couple of shifts when literally that's all we were seeing. And I've talked to colleagues that sort of felt the same way. I almost forgot how to be a doctor. I really almost didn't know what in the world I was doing with very basic, normal things that are very comfortable for me. Um, You know, we would see a, a chest pain that any other day, a week, you know, a week before would have been an easy workup, easy disposition. But all of that sort of flew out the window. Um, we were so focused on COVID, tunnel vision, and it was hard to know, you know, was this chest pain actually COVID? Was it just chest pain? How do we even work up chest pain? <laughs> what, what do we do here? And then disposition that again, should have been so straightforward a week before, was very difficult to say, you know, is it really worth admitting this patient for a stress test that may not be necessary and maybe this is the most dangerous place for them in town? So that was weird (laughs) and, and pretty dramatic for a couple of days until we sort of adjusted to the new norm. It really just sort of shook, shook up everything. Sarah, that was really enlightening to hear her story. It sounds like LSU was pretty well prepared and they came together as a team. And we have seen this coming together as a team in other areas as well. This is a horrible, horrible moment in time, but a lot of us have really risen to the occasion and teamwork has taken on a whole new meaning. Yeah, and along with teamwork, there are some other key points I heard in her story. She used the word overwhelmed that we hear so often in conjunction with surge. Their system wasn't overwhelmed from a space or equipment perspective, and it sounds like the doctors really rose to the occasion, and luckily not many went out sick. But they were overwhelmed with how sick these patients were. We truly didn't know, and still don't really know, how to treat COVID patients. They were just beginning to see how COVID impacts other medical conditions and the myriad ways it presents. So even simple things became more complex. During a mass shooting, you at least know right off the bat who's been affected and how to treat them. COVID is a whole different kind of disaster. I mean, this is obvious, but you can also really hear the concern that Leslie and all of the other doctors had that they were putting their own loved ones at risk. That makes it hard to focus when you are worried about others at your home, too. 
This is crucial to learn from others because this could be us in a second surge or another pandemic. When I first heard in Italy that there were rheumatologists and dermatologists taking care of ICU patients, I was floored. (laughs) (laughs) I had a hard time imagining that kind of desperation. Right? And we heard in our last heartbeat how Elmhurst, a hospital in Bronx, New York, experienced an epic surge, and they called for physicians from across the country to help. Our colleagues at UC Davis returned from that service, and to put it mildly, they strongly suggested that we talk to Dr. Alfredo Astua about utilizing providers of all types to take care of some of the sickest patients ever. So I spoke with Dr. Alfredo Astua, who is the Chair of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at Elmhurst Hospital in New York about his experience during the surge. Tell us about how COVID has impacted you guys at Elmhurst. None of us will ever be the same after COVID. When I started working in the ICU a few days before COVID hit, I was merely taking over the shifts that a friend of mine, one of the colleagues, left for us uh, because he became very concerned about how COVID would impact him and his family. And so he left us a little bit earlier than we thought. And the impact that COVID has had uh, is both negative and positive, you know. I think positive has uh, been sort of a glue that has gotten so many of us to work closer together than we've ever had, to communicate with each other better than we've ever had, and to realize that uh, we need to lean on each other and offer each other the support that colleagues really should give each other as we've never had before in our lives. You guys are in New York, and New York has been one of the cities most impacted by COVID in the United States. What has that looked like for you guys with your patient population there at Elmhurst? The patient population that we have are incredibly special and true to me. I grew up in the area. I grew up about five blocks away. I know the stores. I know the people. As I leave work, sometimes I see you know my past neighbors. Our community is one that's very diverse and made up with a lot of you know day laborers and um, and workers that can't necessarily uh, take time off from work. Some of them can't quarantine themselves as we've been directing people to do so. And they've been impacted because they don't have the, the means or the resources to be able to take part in some of the recommendations that the CDC has given, that the government has given, and that we have given them uh, because of their living situations. How did you guys know as a hospital system and as the director of the critical care unit that this virus was going to be different than some of our flu episodes and other viruses that we've had cause problems for us as a medical community? Like everyone, we have been reading about it. We've been preparing about it. But uh, I think nothing could have prepared any hospital system the way that COVID hit us and hit New York in general. One night as I was working, uh, we received two patients with ARDS, a condition that affects the lungs. Probably one would say that it's the most difficult situation that one encounters in patients that have shortness of breath and that um, need oxygen. 
And, you know, we might get one or two of these a month in our hospital. And uh, we got two of these one night. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, this is possibly COVID. Uh, maybe this is the beginning, but, you know, it could be an odd day. And the next, within the next 24 hours, we received four more of these. So now within two days, we had received what we usually would get in about half a year's worth. And that was, uh, I can't even tell you the, the alarms that went off in my head. I felt, you know, like the guy at the corner ringing a bell saying, listen to me, you know, hear me. This is going to be an incredible feat for all of us. That's what I knew. What did you do with that information? How did you ring that bell? First, I got uh, all the staff from the ICU together, the nursing, nursing management. I got all my colleagues, and I spoke to um, administration right away. And I said, look, you know, I think this is the beginning of something huge and incredible and uh, terrifying that's going to occur. And so we had on-the-spot meetings about what it could mean and how we could possibly prepare for the next coming days. And what did you guys do to prepare? Our ICU is about eight beds. And usually when our patients come to the ICUs, they're the sicker of the sick because we have this step-down unit of about 50 beds that we can uh, send a lot of our patients to. But it was clear that within a two or three days that our ICU was already overrun. So we decided to open up a sister unit right next door that it houses another eight patients, eight beds in order to prepare. And we started looking at, well, what do we do when these other eight beds fill up? Within, uh, I think it was 24 hours, we already had a meeting about where we would put patients, surge patients. And surge patients are basically patients that have to be put in units that are not usual to house intensive care type of patients, you know, these really, really sick patients, but that would have to be made into ICUs in order to to take care of the volume of patients that one could foresee coming. Did you guys have surge plans before all of this started? Oh, yeah. The administration and the command center, they had it all worked out. You know, so they had a step-by-step sort of gradient as to where patients would be placed as more patients came in. The big challenge for us, the huge, huge challenge for us was the amount of patients that came and how quickly they came. Being able to take care of all those patients and opening up all those surge beds, I would say that it was incredibly challenging. You know, look, we usually run about 30 ventilators a day, 30 to 35. And we went from 30 to 35 to 170 ventilators in a matter of about two weeks. I mean, this was beyond anybody's expectation and beyond anybody's um, imagination. You know, doctors are a small portion of this, but you had to have doctors, critical care doctors. You had to have nurses, critical care nurses. You had to have respiratory therapists. You had to have nutritionists. You had to have housekeeping. You had to have transport. You know, the amount of people that it takes to open up an extra ICU space, it's very difficult to comprehend because it takes a huge amount of people to be able to open one of these places. And they opened up multiple places all throughout the hospital. We even had these makeshift ICUs uh, within the emergency room in order to be able to take care of all our patients. Did you guys come up with a transfer plan? Was there a possibility 
to transfer some of these patients, um, some of the maybe less sick patients, to another facility? So we have you know, 11 hospitals. We're the, the largest uh, hospital system in the country that is public, I believe. But we also were looking at other hospitals that were sister hospitals, you know, in proximity, uh, not necessarily part of the system in order to be able to transfer. And look, you know, it wasn't just about transferring the less sick patients, but it's just the amount of extremely sick patients that came. Those were also the patients that had to be mobilized and had to be transferred. But, you know, transferring a patient is a very tricky thing because the patient has to be stable enough to be able to be put into an ambulance and taken off the particular ventilator that they're in and put into a transport ventilator and to be then uh, driven, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes to their destination. And so transferring a patient is, is, a, is a tricky thing. Uh, and it took a lot of uh, coordination, a lot of evaluation, a lot of communication between hospital systems as to see which patients would be able to be kept in-house in the hospital and which patients would be able to be transported to other hospitals nearby. But uh, we did. The severity of the patients, you know, it was a big, huge gray line. Some of these patients came in and had to be placed just on oxygen or a little bit of oxygen. Other patients needed gradients of oxygen support. And it was trying to really look at the patients and, and evaluate them really closely to see would they deteriorate within a matter of hours? Would they deteriorate in a matter of uh, minutes? Would they deteriorate in a matter of, of days? And given the novelty of the disease, it was sometimes very difficult to predict. Some of these patients, they're proud and they're at home and they're copying it out, you know, being sick. And so by the time that they came to us, some of them had been sick, quite sick for a few days already at home. So then trying to determine if they were going to deteriorate in the next few hours was, was also a tricky thing. And uh, we had to be very, very careful in order to be able to give them the best treatment possible. At what point did you realize you were going to need to mobilize all of the physician group uh, at your hospital beyond just your critical care providers? We had the first meeting within 24 hours. The search plan calls for that, you know, for mobilizing doctors that are not necessarily uh, intensivists, but calling on everything that they know about medicine. So we, we knew pretty early on the trick was to be able to make teams and formulate those teams and mobilize those teams promptly to the surge ICUs. And, you know, I think they did that rather well. And everybody um, that was called on to serve participated with the most enthusiasm and the, the most knowledge that they could. However, look, you know, I mean, as a critical care doc, we do a fellowship for at least three years and then takes a lot of other years of practice to be able to master things like the ventilators, like the breathing machines. And so, it's, you know, sometimes it's not an easy task. And these patients that are the sickest patients that I've ever seen in certainly my career were quite challenging for me, let alone for uh, other doctors from other specialties. And so it was quite a bit of on-the-job training and on-the-job learning. So what did you guys do? Did you put them in charge of ventilators or did you give other providers other tasks? Or how did that organization end up working and what did it end up actually looking like, even despite your initial intentions? You know, we really looked at all the providers in the hospital and we said, well, which providers are a little bit more comfortable with ventilators, more comfortable with critically ill patients? You had to look into the anesthesiologists, the trauma surgeons. So you had to look to them and put them in charge of these units and then build a team around them 
However, my colleagues and myself, you know, we rounded uh, several times a day after seeing our patients. We would go to the other surge units and give help, give advice, troubleshoot the, the ventilators, troubleshoot some of the labs, and give quick lessons in how to manage these patients. We ended up having about eight different ventilators. So learning how to use some of these ventilators was challenging for all of us, let alone for doctors that are not 100% familiar with them. So we made videos, we made um, the spot teaching, and again, it was about communication, teamwork, and resilience. Alfredo, how long were you guys in surge capacity for? There's different levels of surge capacity. And so we went from late March to just about now. We're still in surge, and that's why we have had so much uh, need for assistance from different areas, like the doctors from California, like the doctors from UC Davis that came to help us, like the military, you know, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the special operations. They've been crucial in us being able to handle the volume of patients and for the, the amount of time that we've had to take care of these patients. And, and we, thank, uh, we thank all of them. When or how did you realize that you were going to need outside physician, nurse support? In the ICUs, we usually have one nurse for every two patients. And uh, once we were in, into our sister uh, unit, we knew because we had to start pulling nurses from different areas in order to maintain that ratio so that we could take care of the patients appropriately. We knew that uh, we were going to need help in, in all directions, from doctors to respiratory therapists to nurses, to housekeeping, everyone, because it takes a huge amount of people in order to open up any one of these surge ICUs. How did you organize all of those providers coming in from the outside hospital? Like, how did that logistically work? It's not every day in the United States that we have hospitals go back and forth between systems. How did that work? They had a command center where a lot of this got ironed out. In the command center, they had two central people that took in volunteers that reached out to the military. And, uh, and, and so it was, again, a lot of communication and, and uh, looking into what resources you need and at what time. So basically, it was all handled through a command center. How did you maintain provider safety for your team that was working with you? The PPE that the hospital provided, I think that was, that was adequate. The part that is always the most challenging is the amount of hours that one needs to work. You know, in our division, for example, we were six people. And early on, one of our colleagues got sick and the other one wasn't able to work for various reasons. And and a third, as I said, left us due to his worries about the way that COVID would affect his life. And so uh, we were down about 50% of the intensive care unit docs that usually work. So the amount of hours that we had to put in were quite long, but the stamina and the willingness to help our patients is what kept everyone driven. And safety was always uh, a priority. You know, when, whenever we would enter a room, we would have a buddy that would sort of look back after you and make sure you were wearing all your PPE and even in difficult situations, even in emergency situations. So it was a lot of collegiality. It was a lot of uh, teamwork so that everybody would be able to to be safe. How do you maintain that sense of humanity and compassion towards your patients when you're in the middle of such a struggle? Part of it, you go into autopilot. Your vision, your duty to serve, your duty to help your community is intensified. 
it just takes over. It takes over into autopilot. But uh, but while you're driving uh, down the road, uh, looking straight ahead, uh, you know, many times you have to uh, look to your side and and see, make sure that you know your colleague, your nurse colleague, or your or the resident working there, uh, they didn't look quite right. And no matter what else you were doing, to stop and make sure that that they were okay, because you know everybody's uh, spoke in the wheel, and if one little spoke of that wheel is not quite right, the bike doesn't roll down the road. It was very difficult, um, but it's something that just it just had to be done. The resilience that so many people showed for such a long time has been overwhelming at times for me and for my colleagues. The generosity of everybody's time, the generosities of everybody's strength in self-sacrifice, you know, leaving their families, spending time away from their young kids, spending time away from their parents, you know, and from their grandparents. It's an incredible, incredible feat that everybody's really risen to the occasion. Alfredo, how do you recommend maintaining communication with your team in the middle of such a busy surge time? I mean, we had a really great communication system, I think, with um, with the ER. You know, because, uh, again, every patient that comes in through the doors has to come through the ER. So we kept an open line right away. We formed group chats, what works, what isn't working. We would designate people to look into different journals and different websites to read different things in order to be able to stay up to date in an ever-changing situation where new information would literally come in every day. We had our Google Drives where we would put a lot of information that we would gain, slide decks that team members would put together literally overnight, you know, diagrams that people would make, you know, and, and so it was places that we could go to and get ideas. Alfredo, if you could go back in time and talk to your February self, what lessons have you learned? How should we prepare for this if this comes to our hospital? Be patient. Know that you're going to have to be stronger than you've ever been, more resilient than you've ever been, more collegial than you've ever been, more understanding, um, more accepting than you've ever been. Prepare for the biggest challenge that you will ever have in your life. From the technicalities, I think, expect and prepare for the worst. And I know that that's sort of like the motto that we always uh, think about, but really, really do. Think to yourself, you know, if I'm going to open up spaces for 10 patients, think well ahead and and open up a space for 20 patients. If I'm going to open up a space for 20 patients, open up a space for 40 patients, you know. Prepare for the worst uh, is an understatement. Whatever your hospital system, whatever your administration, whatever the government is telling you that will occur, expect double that. It's always better to be over-prepared than to be just prepared. Be also um, prepared now to train doctors, as we've spoken about, doctors that typically don't manage ventilators, have slide decks, have videos for them, have tutorials for them so that they can feel better prepared and better equipped and be more secure in taking uh, care of these type of patients. Super interesting. Well, anything else, Alfredo, you think we should know about your experience or lessons that we should all learn? These patients are are very vulnerable. You know, that there's no one particular magic bullet that we found yet to cure COVID-19. We really have to be more human than ever 
when a patient comes in, you are caring for you know an entire family. That that uh, that that young man is a father, is a son, is a husband. You need to be prepared. You need to be strong. You need to be resilient. You need to be thoughtful. You need to be diligent. You need to extend a hand to your neighbor. You know, your neighbor's husband or your neighbor's uh, friend might be in the hospital and he or she might not be able to go and buy food. Be thoughtful in, in ways that you have never, ever been before to help not only your patients, but your colleagues and your community. If we all do that, we will beat this thing in a better fight. Pulse check. A medical surge is when the number of patients or patient needs exceeds the limits of the normal medical infrastructure of an affected community. Overwhelmed is a buzzword that we hear again and again. We can be overwhelmed because we don't know the enemy we're fighting or what weapons to use, or overwhelmed by the quantity of patients, or even overwhelmed emotionally, which challenges the way we make even basic decisions. Creativity is key. We love this part. Think outside of the box, create a Google Doc, and share resources. Be prepared to do tasks or take on roles in new ways. Be flexible. Communication is everything. Humbly reach out to all players to learn from each other and get on the same page. Think big. This pandemic pushed us beyond most imaginations. If you're setting up eight extra beds, think what are the next steps for 16? Prepare now. When you're training people on a new vent or procedure, don't just teach those here and now. Record a video that could be used in a search. Think big. Be patient with yourselves and others. Alfredo said it poetically. Be diligent. Extend a hand to a neighbor. Be thoughtful in ways you've never been before. Okay, we know we all have to be ready for the next surge, and we learned some important lessons from our colleagues. It really struck me when Alfredo said that this was beyond anyone's imagination. Your C-suite or admin may or may not be prepared for a surge, but are you? In part two, we hear how hospitals prepare for surge and how our emergency department prepared for surge from the provider perspective. Right, the nuts and bolts. And this isn't theoretical. In our area and in many states, we are starting to see an increase in new COVID cases again. So we may still see a surge. Join us to learn more in part two of Surge coming July 3rd. We hope that you are benefiting from these podcasts that look at different aspects of COVID. Rate us and share with your friends and follow us at EM Pulse Podcast. Thank you to all of our colleagues for your creativity, flexibility, and thinking big during a stressful time. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for putting up with our surges of podcasting creativity. You handle all of that with a lot of patience. Thanks, guys, and see you soon.